KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. In an industry that constantly reinvents how shows are made and how they're watched, legendary sitcom director James Burroughs says making a successful comedy still takes the same talent that it always has. Anybody with an iPhone can make a show. So you have, I think, 600 shows on the air. I mean, back when I started, there were three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 300 networks and 30 great comedy writers. Burroughs talks to Eric Deggins about why working on the Frasier revival was a glorious return after a few years away from directing. And he says a call from Kelsey Grammer was reason enough to do the show. He also addresses a debate about whether genre-bending television like Barry and Succession should be considered comedy. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So, obviously, the big story is finally, after what is 100-plus days, we have a deal for SAG-AFTRA. This was an extremely painful time, not just for Hollywood, but for anyone who had anything to do with Hollywood, florists, caterers, many, many people, of course, the crews. This was a brutal thing. I know that the studio side was quite frustrated at times with the negotiating style of Fran Drescher and Duncan Crabtree Ireland, the lead negotiator. Fran Drescher is a bit quirky. She came in with her plushie. She liked to talk about Buddhism at the start, but she's a smart businesswoman. And they came away with a deal that has the town jubilant mostly, I would say, and as they are presenting it, a billion dollars worth of improvement and precedent-shattering provisions. I think some of that is true because what I was hearing from the studio side in the negotiations was that they had made this magnanimous offer. And as it dragged on, of course, they got very frustrated. It was hard to tell who was spinning what, but clearly they did make that three-year record-setting offer. So I would say victory for Fran Drescher and Duncan Crabtree Ireland. Well, we will see when the full details of the deal are revealed. As we're taping, they have not yet. We've only gotten a summary, and I interviewed Duncan, and Fran has gone on television and talked about the deal. But generally speaking, they did get above pattern on the wage increases, which means that the other two guilds, the writers and the directors, got 5% wage increases in the first year. The actors got more than that. Probably not the 11% they were asking, and they ultimately brought that down to around 9%, but somewhere in that range, which I do think is a win if they get more than the other guilds. And then they got this streaming performance bonus, which is not what they actually wanted. They wanted a percentage of revenue from the streaming services. Yeah, that was a bit much. (laughs) Right, and that was never going to happen. And finally they pivoted and they settled on something similar to what the writers did, which is they're going to get a bonus for their members if content is watched by more than a certain percentage of a service's members. Now, how that money is going to be distributed and what that bonus is has yet to be seen, but most of the people I've talked to around the Guild say at least it gets the foot in the door. It's a new residual, something that did not exist before this strike for this Guild, and that must be considered a win. 
But some of that goes into a guild fund, which will be distributed by the guild. And I think there's a bit of possible concern about how they will do that. At this point, we certainly don't seem to know how. We don't, no. And that, uh, again, devil's in the details on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and then there's AI. And they really, that was going down to the bitter end, this back and forth over AI. And, you know, for some of this industry, we don't quite know how it's going to be used. Some of it is already being used. And that is something that they fought tooth and nail to win some protection for the actors. Yeah, and according to Duncan Crabtree Ireland, the last final negotiation that was taking so long was over whether the studios would be able to use the image and likeness of actors in their movies to create what's called synthetic actors or fake actors. And the Guild wanted to make sure that actors got consent to letting that happen and compensation whenever it happened. And that was what they were going back and forth on for a while at the very end. We'll see where the language of the deal ended up and whether they got the provisions they want. Crabtree Ireland indicated that a lot of the language that SAG wanted did not end up being the language that's in the deal, but they were confident that it protected them in a way that they were at least comfortable signing off on. Yeah, that will be scrutinized. Uh, and, you know, I did hear from one of the studio people involved that Fran Drescher, who I think started as a cosmetologist in this business, really was passionate about protecting the people who you don't necessarily think of when you hear SAG-AFTRA, you know, people who do hair and makeup and made a big point of that. And so I would assume those people will be very, very pleased. And background actors as well. They specifically called out background and stunt performers as people that will benefit here. And you don't often see that in some of the Guild language. So this will all be parsed very carefully in the coming weeks. But let's turn to some of the other news. It was a tough uh, go-around with earnings this time for Warner Brothers Discovery. David Zaslav said, this is a generational disruption we're going through. Going through that with a streaming service that's losing billions of dollars, it's really difficult to go on offense. And I think that a lot of other studios know that as well. Yeah, well, the good news for Warner Discovery is they're saving a bunch of money thanks to the strike. They have made a lot of efforts to raise money. They're selling off their catalog to other streamers, notably Netflix, to generate cash. They're yes, making. This is not your fewer... favorite thing, Matt. I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you to say it's not your favorite thing. Well, no, no, no. I think it's a smart strategy to generate revenue from library content. I just don't think they should be selling the premium stuff to Netflix because Netflix is clearly pulling away in the streaming wars and building a moat around itself. And Warner's is gladly helping them by giving them 12 DC movies and HBO content and all of this stuff that makes the consumer start to think, well, hey, everything's going to be on Netflix. If I can watch HBO and DC movies on Netflix, then maybe I'll just only subscribe to Netflix and not Max. And yeah. we're seeing the growth at Max is not great, whereas the growth at Netflix this past quarter was pretty great. So that's my beef there. But they did have some good news on the free cash flow. The problem is the ad market, which they're very exposed to through the cable business, is not recovering that well. Yeah, uh, the Warner Brothers Discovery stock closed down 19%. And media stocks had been doing a bit better, partly because Paramount had shown some growth and some signs of life when many people had thought it was roadkill. And they also did lose subscribers to their streaming service. So it's been a rough one for them. But on the other side, there is Disney with what appear to be significantly better results. They had previously said they wanted to cut their costs by about... 
$5 billion, and they've raised that goal, which is something that will help them, obviously, going forward. They did acquire more uh, subscribers to the streamer, and Bob Iger is sticking by a prediction that I think both of us thought that they would have to give up on, which was saying that they would be profitable with the streamer by 2024. Yeah, and obviously the strike is helping Disney as well with less content spend. And, you know, they are reducing the amount of money they're spending on new shows and movies. I mean, it's really that simple. This pullback that we've seen over the past six to eight months is impacting these companies and their ability to get to profitability or at least to stem the losses in the streaming service. And, you know, we'll see if the market rewards Disney for that kind of era of austerity that Bob Iger has put in place. But he now says that they've pulled the Band-Aid off, they've done the cuts, they've done the retrenchment and and refocusing, and he now says that they are positioned to start growing and implementing their strategy. We'll see. Yes, his words were, while we still have work to do, these efforts have allowed us to move beyond this period of fixing and begin building our businesses again. We have a solid foundation of creative excellence and innovation built over the past century, which has only been reinforced by the important restructuring and cost efficiency work we've done this year. But he then goes on to talk about four key building opportunities that are central to the success of the company. He says this will include building ESPN into the preeminent digital sports platform, improving the output and economics of our film studios and turbocharging growth in our parks and experiences business. So, you know, they got a movie opening right now that sort of encapsulates the concerns, right? The anxiety about the Marvels and the potential superhero fatigue that has been much discussed. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Iger specifically targeted the output and the expenses associated with film, I think Marvel's is the perfect example. This is an incredibly expensive movie, $250 million by most accounts. It is the 33rd Marvel Cinematic Universe film. So the question is, do they need to make as many Marvel films and television shows as they have been making? And most people believe they probably do not. And the creative execution. These films have not delivered in the way that the Marvel films leading up to Avengers Endgame have delivered. So they've got to figure that out. And I think that's Iger's way of saying, like, don't worry, we know this is a problem, we're going to fix it, but we'll see if they can. Yeah, I mean, it's not do they need to keep making those movies. It's it's, shouldn't they not slow down the making of those movies. And make them cost less. Well, yes, they're very expensive. And then they did, you know, they just made the streaming service saturated with Marvel stuff. And at a certain point, yeah, I think it does begin to wear. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. TV legend James Burroughs is a legend for a reason. We could spend the entire show listing his directing credits with work that includes The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Cheers, Taxi, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and many more. Now 82 years old, with 11 primetime Emmys competing for space on his mantle, Burroughs is a bit more selective about which jobs he takes. He calls himself semi-retired, but he says a phone call from actor Kelsey Grammer was enough to get him back in the director's chair for the first two episodes of the Frasier revival on Paramount+. After all this time, Frasier is still, as Burroughs likes to put it, the same pompous, pretentious human being that he always was. What is it about the city of Boston that leads me to forego the more sophisticated temptation of the fermented grape? Sitting here with a cold brew in my hand, I feel amalgamated with the hoi polloi. You are the classic everyman. 
Burroughs spoke to Eric Deggins about his long career in television and how he found name recognition as a sitcom director. You know, I've been a TV critic for a long time, and there's not many directors who really become known for television. But, I mean, your resume from Mary Tyler Moore and Cheers to Will and Grace and The Big Bang Theory, you've kind of become a legend in the TV industry. And I'm wondering, what do you bring to the job or to what you do that is so special that, you know, your name has become synonymous with quality direction in television? I think the main thing I bring is I bring a sense of um, community. The multi-camera sitcom is a writer's-driven medium. It always has been. So the writers, they write the show, they cast the show, they do the set designs, they talk to the network, so it's a writer's-driven medium. And they, you know, they work hard on the script, uh, and you have to respect that. So... What I do is I try to break down those barriers between writer and actor and director and make everybody feel like they're all a part, that they can suggest stuff, that they can come up with material, they can say what they want about a certain script without incurring the wrath of a writer. So (laughs) in the beginning, when I started in the 70s on Mary Tyler Moore and Phyllis and Laverne and Shirley and everything like that, I didn't have the cojones to do that. But once I did Cheers, people started to realize that I didn't know what I was talking about. Because if you empower an actor, you know, they'll tell you ideas, they'll be more available to create. If you cast the right actors, they're very creative. And so I try to form this homogeneous group of people that all want to make the show better and like one another. And uh, hopefully that comes across the screen. I just happened to look on Wikipedia, and I saw that your first TV job, or one of them, was as a dialogue coach on a show called OK Crackerby. <laughs> and I said, I, I got to ask him about this. Like, what was the show? And what does a dialogue coach do on a show like that? And did it color your, your perception of what the TV industry was like? <laughs> it was a show in 1965. It starred Burl Ives, and uh, it was a show that my father created for television. It didn't do very well. And I was brought out to run lines with Burl Ives. And, uh, you know, the show was canceled, and I came back to New York and started in the theater. But that was my first job as a dialogue coach. And really, that was sort of my way of trying to be funny about bringing up your father, Abe, who's also legendary in show business, involved with legendary productions like Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business. And I was wondering if you thought that your touch with material and your draw to comedy uh, had any connection to your, your father's work. I do, incredibly. I never wanted to go into show business. I lived in New York City. My dad was a legend. I was Abe's kid. Uh, But I found that my father taught me when I didn't know I was learning. (laughs) And um, when I graduated college, the Vietnam War was happening. So I decided to go to Yale School of Drama. And there, I kind of acquainted myself with what a director does. They had this wonderful professor named Nico Sakharopoulos, who founded the Williamstown Theater. And he kind of inspired me. I kind of said, well, maybe I can do that. I knew I couldn't write. And uh, if you've ever seen The Comeback, you know I can't act. Uh, <laughs> so there was directing. And uh, I found out, you know, I would do occasional scenes in acting class or stuff like that, or directing class, you'd stage a scene. Mm-hmm. And I kind of saw a little 
glimmer there. And then after I graduated, I was an assistant to the assistant stage manager in New York City on a show called Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is where I met Mary Tyler Moore. You know, I was around the theater, so I started to soak up what it was because I'm, you know, they call me a television director, but I'm really a theatrical director. The shows I do are multi-camera sitcoms in front of a live audience, which is, in essence, is a play, a 25-minute play every week. Right. So you you don't need a filmatic knowledge for this because you just point a camera at different characters and you cover the play. So the essence of my work is making sure the play works. Wow. And you know, it's interesting, like I'm a bit of a comedy nerd. And so I feel like when I look at stand-up comics, for example, the ones that have been around for a long time, some of them... I can sense a fear that their comedy might get out of style or the way that they see that things are funny might be out of step with how, you know, particularly young people do. But when we talk about your career, you know, you started in the 70s. You're still directing comedy now successfully. I mean, do we make too much about how comedy changes over the eras or are you able to kind of stay in step? with what people find funny from sitcom after sitcom, you know, year after year? Well, if you're doing a a sitcom, you have to be funny. That's the number one ingredient. And jokes are eternal. There's a lot of jokes in sitcoms that are derived from older jokes, putting a new spin on an older joke. So I don't think that essence has changed. I think, you know, there's some norms you can't deal with anymore. You know, somebody's going to be offended by it. And now the offended people have a more powerful megaphone than they've ever had, especially with the Internet. So you got to be middle of the road. Don't forget, when I started out, there were three networks. So you had an audience, you know, you had a third share. Right. And uh, so you were appealing to a greater mass of the audience than these streaming shows do. So you had kind of had to be down the middle with your humor. And I still think if you're down the middle... You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to avoid turning people off, which is, you have to be aware of that. Although uh, on some shows, they don't mind if they turn people off because they (laughs) think they turn other people on. Right. So I want to ask you a question that that might actually get you in trouble, but I'm going to ask you anyway. TV comedy is very different now than it was years ago. And people are looking at shows like The Bear, which I don't know if you've seen it, or Barry, and wondering whether that's actually comedy. I wanted to ask you, as someone um, who's been in the business a while and and dealt with many different kinds of TV, what do you think about this debate about what actually makes a TV comedy? Well, you know, I agree with that. I think they're dramedies. I think somebody came up with that term. You know, when Ally McBeal won the best drama and best comedy, I think, was it the same year or one year after it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was one year. You know, after. that to me, that's not really a comedy. I mean, it's a dramedy. It's it's cute humor. The real hard laughs are in the multi-camera sitcom. It's in front of an audience. That to me is comedy. And uh, I love Barry. I think it's well done, everything like that. But it's dark. It's a, you know, black comedy. I mean, to me, a show like Succession is a good example of a show where, even though it's defined as a drama, I always thought it was a comedy. Like, just super dry and dark. But, like, the whole point of the show is to make you laugh a little at how absurd these people are. And that, to me, says comedy more than drama. 
Well, if you did succession in front of an audience, how many laughs would you get? <laughs> that's true. And, the, and, and that's your surest measure, right? If you do it and people laugh, yeah. that's a comedy. <laughs> that's a comedy. See, that's why you're a great director. You can just break it down simply. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up after the break, James Burroughs cheers on the guilds that have fought for streaming residuals. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Legendary TV director James Burroughs has worked on sitcoms since the 1970s, including classics like Cheers, Taxi, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Friends, and Frasier. Though most of his career has been in broadcast television, in recent years Burroughs has also dealt with streamers. He spoke to Eric Deggins about working on the 10-episode revival of Frasier on Paramount+. You directed the first two episodes of the new Frasier revival. I did. And now I can understand why they would want you in on this because you directed 32 episodes of the original Frasier. You directed, what, 243 episodes of Cheers, the show that Frasier spun off from. But why did you want to get involved with this revival? Because Kelsey called. Mm. And I've known the man for 40 years. I feel responsible a little bit for what's become of him. And um, we just work together, and it's so easy. And, you know, Kels works all the time. I don't. And just to be able to get on a stage last February for two weeks and get a hunk of clay that I can mold into something had not happened in about four or five years because of COVID and the lack of new sitcoms and stuff like that. So, you know, it's the old Norman Cousins line who, you know, he had a real bad disease and in the hospital he asked him to bring in Marx Brothers tapes and W.C. Field movies and he would watch him from his hospital bed and he would laugh and it added years to his life and I feel like the same thing is true for me. Those two weeks in February were glorious time. And can you talk a little bit about, I mean, I imagine that Kelsey Grammer is one of those actors that you talked about where he can take something and add his vision to it and make it better. And certainly the fact that this character is still starring in television, you know, what, 40 years since he was first created. Can you talk a little bit about what Kelsey brings to playing Frasier and how that chemistry that you were talking about, how you work with actors and writers, how that works on this show? Uh, well, Kelsey's an incredible actor. He takes this um, pompous, pretentious human being and makes him lovable by playing the vulnerability. You don't see it, but that's what he does. And on Cheers, he was a buffoon because the vulnerability in that show, in essence, well, the center of that show was Sam Malone. 
So Kels didn't have to be the center. So when Angel Casey and Lee spun Kelsey off into the Fraser show, they took the buffoon and made him Sam alone and hired David Hyde Pierce to play Frazier from Cheers. <laughs> and that was the genius that uh, David, Peter and David did. And on the new show, he's playing a... Don't forget when Kelsey did his first Cheers episode, he was 29 years old and looked 45. Right. And now he's in his 60s and he looks 45. So that look in him hasn't changed that much. So there's still that, that character. However, in this situation... He's not dealing with his father. He's dealing with his son. So it's a new, you can see a new permutation of this character. As we talk, we've just seen the Writers Guild uh, wrap up a deal, a new deal with the studios uh, that ended their strike. And, you know, as somebody whose career uh, sort of started, you know, in the heyday of the sitcom, and, and now you're working on a streaming show... I was wondering if you had any thoughts about some of the issues that came out during the strikes, particularly compensation for streaming versus compensation for when sitcoms were sold into syndication and that sort of thing. And and do you feel like the future of the medium is, has been improved at all with you know these new deals that people are pushing for? Well, there's been a number of strikes. There was a strike in the 60s for residuals. Right. And they got them. You know, I get occasionally, I get a check for uh, $15 for a rerun of Laverne and Shirley. And uh, that's a good thing because there's other directors getting that too. Right. And so with the streaming, if your show was successful, you didn't see a residual because they would buy you out in the beginning. When you made a deal with a streamer to do a show, I did Disjointed with Catchy Bates. Right. And they they paid me a salary and then they bought my back-end rights out. Yeah, that was a Netflix show, right? Yeah, I think so. And I have no idea how popular the show was, but the, the glaring example right now is a show called Suits. Right. Which was not incredibly popular on cable TV, but is incredibly popular now. And those people don't see a cent because it runs all the time and they don't get any residuals. So I cheered both the writers and the actors and the directors. We settled early. But uh, to get streaming residuals, I think it's important and have the streamers let us know how many people are watching the show. I'm glad they struck. I'm glad they won some compensation. And, you know, the other problem is AI. And I'm not sure what the outcome of that will be. Right. I mean, you know, my concern as I was watching this unfold is I, I remember the last strike in 2007, 2008. And even though they tried to get concessions that would address all this new media technology that was coming, nobody could really predict the streaming era. So they really didn't quite get their arms around what TV was going to become. And I wonder if we're having the same challenge now. You know, it's hard to figure out where this medium is going to be five years from now. I know, but you got to settle on what you think. And then, you know, they'll probably strike again when new things are discovered. Uh, There was an actor strike the, the only link into this story is strike. It has nothing to do with negotiation. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I remember go, this story. Go for, it. go for it. There was an active strike when I was doing taxi in the late 70s or early 80s. And so it was quite a long strike. And uh, Danny DeVito invited everybody over to his house because we wanted to do the taxi repertory company. <laughs> so I came over and Judd, everybody was there. We talked about it. 
And Danny was redoing his house. He wanted to show us. He took us into the guest house and we were standing around looking and all of a sudden a two by four fell on my head (laughs) and cracked my skull open. Oh, no. And if you have a skull injury, there's a lot of blood vessels up there, so it bleeds. Sure. So Tony Danza and Jeff Conaway threw me in a car and took me to my internist. And they linked arms with me. We walked into the office. And Tony said to the receptionist, Mr. Burroughs has been hit by a two-by-four and he needs help. And the receptionist just stared at Tony Danza and then looked at Jeff Conaway. <laughs> Back between Bobby and Tony, didn't give a about me. I was there bleeding, and these two guys, you know, they were Bobby and Tony from television. Of course. So the doctor said, take him to a plastic surgeon. They walked me in. They said to the receptionist, this is Mr. Burroughs, his head is bleeding. Same thing. They paid no attention to me. There were two receptionists in this office. They were totally gaga. Eventually, I got fixed up, and one of the reasons I am not an actor, other than the fact I have no skill, It's because of the scar on my head. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. It's not that great a story. I'm I'm glad I didn't put it in a show. (laughs) No, it's it's testament to the power of television is is what it is. Oh, my God. You know, you've you've talked about how television could unite people, how it can speak across boundaries of race and gender and class. Uh, But we seem to be in an era of television that's like super specialized where it's not even really trying to do that. And I wonder what you think about that. And, and do you see the sitcom as something that can endure even in the age of streaming where we're so focused on television that speaks to specific niches rather than a big group of people? Yeah, I think it is niche television now uh, because you don't have to get the ratings that you right. got when there were only three networks. Right. Those niche shows, those niche shows would not get any kind of rating. You know, they'd be canceled. You had to do shows that appealed to a massive audience. And now uh, anybody with an iPhone can make a show. And uh, so you have, I think, 600 shows on the air. Almost. Uh, Almost. Yeah. I mean, back when I started, there were three networks and 30 great comedy writers. Now there are 300 networks and 30 great comedy writers. (laughs) So that's my opinion. I mean, you, you know, they don't. Comedy writers don't spring up exponentially, but you could do a show that just appeals to a niche audience and get a number, a small number, but it's a number uh, big enough to keep you on cable or on, on a streaming show. So that's the big difference for me. We do need a Cosby to come along, the show, not the gentleman, to unite the American people. Well, thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate your time talking to us here. Jim Burroughs, thanks for joining the business. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on the business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.